Second Kings chapter 10. We had a wonderful last Sunday night as the high schoolers ministered to us, and then Pastor Justin shared, but we'll return to Second Kings tonight in chapter 10. Remember, the whole theme of Second Kings is covenants and character. God made promises to Israel. Israel made promises to God. But the character is very different. God keeps his promises, and very often God's people don't keep their promises. And so we're, we're looking at now God's judgment upon a king who went beyond just not keeping his promises, but led the nation into idolatry. The line of Ahab, we're coming to the end of their existence. And so to recap what started in chapter 9, remember Elijah, Elisha sent one of his students to a military commander named Jehu, told him to anoint him to be God's instrument of judgment upon Ahab's line and become the next king of Israel. And when Jehu told his fellow commanders what the student said and what he did, they proclaim him king and they begin this military coup. In a lightning-fast strike, we saw in chapter 9 that Jehu succeeds in killing King Jehoram of Israel, King Ahaziah of Judah, as well as the queen mother Jezebel. He takes control of the summer palace there in Jezreel, but the reality is Ahab still has descendants left who can contest his claim to the throne. And so this chapter is going to show us how Jehu deals with his remaining opposition and continues God's judgment to rid the nation of Ahab and Jezebel's influence. So chapter 10, verse 1, and Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, and Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria unto the rulers of Jezreel, to the elders, and to them that bought up, brought up Ahab's children, saying, now as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and that you have chariots and horses and a fortified city also in armor, well, look even out the best and the meetest of your master's sons and set him on his father's throne and fight for your master's house. So, Jehu, he doesn't waste any time. He sends these letters to these various leaders in Samaria. And the reason is, is because Ahab still has 70 sons is probably not correct here. It probably just descendants. It's probably sons, grandsons, nephews, all that kind of stuff. Ahab had many wives and concubines, so he did have many children. But the word here for sons in Hebrew, it could be used to describe all those other type of descendants as well. So it's probably better to say he had 70 descendants, 70 people left that needed to be judged. And so they were there in Samaria, and so Jehu wrote letters and sent to Samaria. Now, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. A large portion of the army, the military commanders, and the politicians who weren't part of Jehu's coup would be there in Samaria. And they would just be getting the news that their king was dead, the queen mother was dead, and that Jehu's now in control of the summer palace and Jezreel. Now, Samaria, where it was built, was a nearly impregnable fortress. Jehu, remember when he came to confront Jezebel, remember what she said to him? She said, ah, you're a fool. You're going to be dead within the week. You can kill me, but you'll be dead within the week. This isn't going to work. And he didn't even answer her. He just said, who's with me? And, you know, throw her out the window. But Jehu's not a fool, even though he ignored her words. This could become a long, ugly war if he didn't press his advantage. And so Jehu just sends these letters and he throws down the gauntlet. He tells him, he says, get ready, I'm, I'm coming for you. Put somebody on the throne to fight me because I'm, I'm coming for you next. 
Now, it's interesting who he writes to. He doesn't write to any of the descendants of Ahab. He writes, it says, to the rulers of Jezreel, which is interesting. This means they'd fled when he captured the palace. They'd fled the city, and they went to Samaria. So they're there. He writes to the elders, so these would be the local leaders, civil authorities, judges. And then he writes to the, it says, those that brought up Ahab's children, which means they, these were the, the mentors, the tutors. The, uh, the word here literally means foster fathers. These were the most influential people in Samaria besides Ahab's family. And they were there, would therefore, because of their influence, would be qualified to select the best of Ahab's descendants to challenge Jehu for the throne. Instead of waiting for them to do so, he sends them a letter, and he says, pick one fast. He says in, in verse 2, now as soon as this letter comes to you, pick a successor, and then let's duke it out. I'm coming for Samaria next, whether you're ready or not, so get ready. He tells them in verse 2, you've got chariots, you've got horses, you've got a fenced city, you've got armor, you've got all the military equipment you need to conduct a war. So he says, look even out, pick the best and the meetest of your master's sons. Best means pleasing, agreeable, desirable. Which one do you like next? Which one's your favorite? The word meetest there, it doesn't just mean capable, it means morally upright. Who do you think is the perfect person to challenge my claim that I'm doing the Lord's work here? Pick them, and then let's fight it out. Gee, who's clever? He knows Ahab's sons aren't well-liked. He knows none of them are, are morally upright. He knows he has the moral high ground here. And so this leaves the leaders in Samaria without a much incentive to fight. Why would they side with Ahab's descendants when they don't think any of them are probably competent enough? None of them have the moral fortitude that Jehu does. If we do this, we're going to lose, verse 4. But they were exceedingly afraid. And they said, Behold, two kings stood not before him. How then shall we stand? He's already killed two kings. How are we going to stop him? And he that was over the house, so they're all discussing this. They get these letters separately. He sends them separately. So they're all hearing this information separately, and they get together, and they realize he sent this to all of us. And so it says, He that was over the house, so this would have been the person in charge of the palace in Samaria, and then it says also he that was over the city. So this would be the military commander in charge of the troops at, at Samaria. It says that they and the bringers up of the children, these foster fathers, these tutors, they got together and they sent a reply to Jehu saying, we're your servants and they, we will do all that you shall bid us. We will not make any king do that which is, you do that which is good in your eyes. Everyone in the, who got the letter agreed a civil war is not the answer. We should commit to Jehu. And so they send a message back to him saying, we're good. What are, you're our king. What are your orders? Jehu, verse 6, then he wrote a letter the second time to them saying, if you be mine and if you will hearken unto my voice, which also means there's an unspoken, if you don't want me to attack. Well, then he says, take you the heads of the men of your master's son, and come to me to Jezreel by tomorrow this time. Now the king's son being 70 persons were with the great men of the city which brought them up. So these guys aren't unaware of what's going on, these 70 descendants. They're involved in some of these conversations, but they don't probably necessarily have this letter. And so the letter says, bring their heads to me, and then I'll know, and there won't, then we won't have to fight this out. 
Well, these men don't want to go down with the ship, so they decide to prove their loyalty by doing as Jehu demands. Verse 7, And it came to pass when the letter came to them that they took the king's sons and slew seventy persons and put their heads in baskets and sent him, Jehu, them to Jezreel. And there came a messenger and told him, Jehu, saying, They have brought the heads of the king's sons. And he said, Lay them in two heaps, two big piles, at the entering of the gate until the morning. Interesting, they didn't follow his orders exactly. They didn't bring the baskets themselves, which means they were likely terrified that this was a trap for them too. If we take their heads and you come here, you can say, why did you kill the king's sons? And then execute us, and then it's all clean and whatever. But that didn't matter to Jehu. He accomplished the purpose of eliminating these rivals without firing a shot. And so he orders these severed heads to be heaped into two piles by the entrance of the city of Jezreel, and he leaves them there overnight. So, I mean, people are talking like, what's going on here? Why are there a bunch of heads out there? He does it because he prepares to make a speech the next morning. I imagine that rumors are spreading in Jezreel about, you know, how a prophet sent a student to come and anoint Jehu to be his instrument of judgment. But how could they know for sure that that wasn't just a story, a rumor, you know, a fabrication that Jehu's floating around to justify his actions? Jehu knows he's got to address the people at some point. He can't just rely upon the military the entire time. And so, in verse 9, it came to pass in the morning that he went out and he stood. And, and the idea stood there is he makes a public address. He, he's in some type of high place where he's standing up where people can see him. And, and this may very likely be the first address to the people of the city he's captured. It came to pass in the morning he went out and stood and said to all the people, you be righteous. The word there actually means innocent. You you're innocent. This isn't your fault. You didn't do this. You're innocent. Behold, I'm not. I conspired against my master and slew him. But I didn't kill all these. Who killed all these men? Who killed all these men? You may have not played any part in the king's death. So you're the perfect judges to determine whether my actions were right or wrong. And he admits, I killed someone I was sworn to serve. But I'm not the only high-ranking person in our nation to do so. If all the people who were at one point loyal to the family of Ahab have turned against them, is it possible there's more going on here than me just wanting power? And he explains there is. Verse 10, no now. In other words, you may be thinking whatever, but this is what you need to know. This is what's going on. Know now that there shall fall unto the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done that which he spoke by his servant Elijah. Know now. That phrase means you must understand what is currently going on. Don't listen to rumors. Don't make up your own mind. This is what's going on. God said that this is what would happen to the family of Ahab, and that is what has happened. That's it. There has not fallen unto the earth, anything that God spoke. The word there to fall, it means to collapse, to die, to cease. It means a change of state. God didn't change his mind. God's word has come to pass. Everything he spoke through Elijah the prophet, everything he said about Ahab's descendants, it's going to happen. And this is just the start. See, a Jew wants him to clearly understand what happened here. And he wants him to understand that he's not done. I'm not finished. God is wiping out Ahab's line, not just through me, but as God's instrument of judgment, he, he would not stop until he was finished 
and none of Ahab's descendants remained alive. Now, I'll admit this speech is a bit manipulative because even though he didn't kill those 70 men, he's behind that too. I mean, he's the one behind that. These guys didn't just up and decide, you know what? We need to follow the Lord. Let's kill all of Ahab's descendants. That's not how that went down. But the speech conveys his point. There's going to be more executions here in this city and anywhere I find any of Ahab's descendants. So the only people that need to be worried is if you're related to Ahab, which is not how it goes down. Look at verse 11. So Jehu slew all that remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel and all his great men and his, King James says kinfolks, but it means acquaintances, all his friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. There was no one attached to the family of Ahab left alive in the city of Jezreel. So he didn't really speak the entire truth. He wiped out anyone who was associated, any leader appointed by Ahab, any friend of Ahab, any priest who served Ahab as a counselor, everyone connected to him is eliminated. Now, is it likely that if you were associated with the family of Ahab that you're wicked too? Yes, it's very likely. But isn't Jehu one of Ahab's great men as well? He is. This slaughter goes beyond what God commanded him to do, which shows us that Jehu has some character flaws despite his professed spirituality. This is not how God has ever told his people to handle judgment. God, if you, if you read the scriptures and you see when God would bring a foreign nation to judge Israel, he would tell these foreign nations time and time again, he says, I brought you here to discipline my people and then you went too far and now I've got to judge you. You were cruel. You were harsh. You went beyond what I told you to do, and now I have to judge you as well. And that's kind of how Jehu's acting here, much more like the heathen than God's people. Well, with Jezreel purged of anyone who could be loyal to Ahab's remaining survivors, Jehu now moves on to take control of the capital in Samaria in verse 12. But before we get to that, I do want to consider something from Jehu's speech. Because he does say something, I think, important that applies to us. He says, not one of God's words will fail. So, do you believe God's words won't fail? Do you believe God will change his mind or go back on his promises? Gee, who got that part right? God will not change his mind and he doesn't go back on his promises. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, we have those famous words, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. God's words don't fail. They don't fall short. They don't die. They don't cease. They don't change. He's faithful. God keeps his promises. Do you believe that? Because he does. One last thought, because I was fascinated by this. I don't know if I just hadn't thought about it or if it's like one of those kind of, you ever have like a duh moment when you read your Bible? Like you read your Bible and, and you see something and you're, you're, you're familiar with it and then suddenly you realize like where it is. I kind of had a moment like that this week. I was like, where's that first? Heaven and earth will pass away, blah, blah, blah. and I'm looking for it and I find it and I'm like, that's in Matthew 24. I knew that, but apparently I didn't know that because that's significant. I think it's easy to quote that verse and then divorce it from its context. Because when does Jesus say those words, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away? He says it 
during his teaching on the rebirth of the nation of Israel in the middle of a chapter on the end times. That's when he says it. Two parts of God's Word that I think the church often either ignores, alters, or explains away are God's plan to restore the nation of Israel and God's plan for the end. Isn't that fascinating? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. I need to know what the Bible says about God's plan for the nation of Israel. Every once in a blue moon, someone will come to me and go, why are you teaching the Old Testament? Because it's the Word of God. We need it. Like, you need to understand this as well. It's an important part to be a fully equipped believer. We need to understand God's plan for the nation of Israel. We need to understand God's plan for the end if we're going to be a fully equipped believer. If you say, I don't want to learn about any of that stuff, or I don't don't know about any of that stuff, and I don't care about any of that stuff, then you'll be a partially equipped believer. So let's not ignore, alter, explain away God's words on those topics. Verse 12, we see here Jehu, it says, he arose and he departed and he came to Samaria And as he was at the shearing house in the way, Jehu met with the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah, and said, who are you? So Jehu is on his way to Samaria, and it mentions that he stops by this travel station. The the King James says shearing house literally means a meeting house of the shepherds. So this is some type of travel station where shepherds, if if you come to Israel with us, we'll at least take a stop in Bethlehem. And you can still today, you will see shepherds just out there. You'll see the the fields of Bethlehem, and they're out there still. They're just walking their flocks around. It's really cool. I remember I was teaching in the Valley of Elah on David and Goliath, and a shepherd came in with tons of sheep. They're all walking behind me while I'm teaching about David and Goliath. It was like one of the coolest moments ever. So these shepherds, they would travel, and they'd travel some distance, and as a result, they needed kind of these way stations, these travel spots where they could get water for their sheep, where they could kind of rest for a bit, find some shade. And so this is one of these kind of meeting spots, travel spots, and because of its, its spot on the main road to Samaria, other travelers besides shepherds would use the place to rest before making the final leg to Samaria. It'd be natural for Jehu to pause here, but when he gets there, he finds another group already there. And he says to me, he goes, who are you guys? Because they don't look like locals. And we already know that they are the brethren of Ahaziah, king of Judah. These are blood relatives of Ahab. These are Ahaziah's, Ahab's grandson. So this is a group from Judah who's here to visit all their cousins who've just been beheaded in Samaria. Now, This shows how close ties have become between the two nations, that Ahab's descendants, they're on both thrones. These guys are interacting with each other all the time. Now, Jehu's already killed their king, but they clearly don't even know it or they wouldn't be here. That's how fast everything is happening for Jehu. So Jehu, when he sees me, he's like, who are you guys? Clearly not from, not local, who are you guys? Before he, he lets them continue, lets them leave. And when he realizes they're descendants from Ahab, he reacts. They answered, we are the brethren of Ahaziah, and we go down to salute, uh, to greet, to spend time with the children of the king and the children of the queen. They're all dead. So he says, take them alive. They took them alive, and then they slew them at the pit, means the the pool or the cistern where they would feed the sheep, uh, water the sheep. 
They slew them at the pit of the shearing house, even 42 men. Neither did he leave any of them. He, He didn't spare anyone. Killed them all. That's a lot of royalty to be traveling in one group. Like, that's like, hey, what's the most efficient way for us to get our entire family assassinated? Some have suggested that for this group to be traveling like that is that, well, they had heard what Jehu had done, and they had been dispatched by the queen mother of Judah, who's Jezebel's daughter, by the way, to go take back the throne. I don't think that's the case, but maybe it is. It doesn't make sense to me to send that many people without an army. What are they going to do? I prefer to see it as God delivering them into Jehu's hand for judgment. You think, well, what's the odds of that? When it comes to God, there are no odds. There are no odds. Like, you don't have to be Han Solo and just don't tell me the odds. There are no odds with God, right? Somebody got that joke. Come on. Oh, man. I know Star Wars is bad these days, but it wasn't always bad. (laughs) Some of you share my strong opinions. In my family, there is no discussion after episode six. So. I've clearly digressed. This wouldn't be surprising if God set it up this way. We know from other situations in Scripture that God can do something like this where He can orchestrate events where people are right where He needs them to be to deal with stuff. And when you consider that, do you understand why the Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God? I mean, we read in Hebrews 10 in our Scripture reading, but, but we can revisit a couple verses here from Hebrews 10. You know, I, I'm always kind of baffled when I hear people say this. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've even said this. And I would challenge you to, if you've said it, read your Bible, and, and you'll probably find it, you will find it's not true. The God of the Old Testament is so harsh, and, you know, the God of the New Testament is so gracious. And the writer of Hebrews would strongly disagree with you. He says, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. If you were living under Israel's law, civil government, where it was God's law was governing the nation, if, if you were to be put to death, you had to have two or three witnesses and it had to be a capital crime. He says, but it's going to be even worse for someone who rejects Christ. He says, of how much sore punishment do you suppose shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant where he has sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite to the Spirit of grace? You know, when I read the book of Revelation, when I read the scriptures that talk about the judgment that's coming from Jesus, from the apostles, I don't know how you can conclude that the God of the Old Testament's mean and the God of the New Testament's nice. The writer of Hebrews says, For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me, and I will repay, says the Lord. And again, we have another scripture for you. The Lord shall judge his people. He says, We're familiar with this stuff. And so he concludes, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, if we isolate, if we isolate 2 Kings 9 and 10, and we just pick those chapters out, we could probably go, dude, that's like God. I mean, wow. But if you do that, you're ignoring 
all the chapters from 1 Kings where God was reaching out to Ahab, and then the first eight chapters of 2 Kings where God's reaching out to King Jehoram. You are ignoring, you're taking two chapters and ignoring 15 or so chapters of where time and time and time again, God is, is calling Ahab and reaching out to him, sending people to minister to him and his family to call them to repentance. And yet they repeatedly resist that. For decades, God sent prophets who pleaded with Ahab and his, his wife and his, his sons to, to trust God. God has been so, so merciful. But if you keep doing that over and over again for years, eventually your time is up. And when you find yourself standing up against God on the other side of the ring, you are so so outmatched. It is terrifying. This will be the tragedy of the the great tribulation. I mean, the world's going to rally behind their man, the Antichrist, who's going to lead the charge against God and Jesus, going to throw off God's shackles, you know? They're going to shake their fist at the sky, even as judgment's coming upon them and going, "Your, your day's coming, God. Your day's coming, Jesus. And they're going to rally behind their man. They're going to really think that this guy can somehow take on God. He survived death. He's back. You know, we got this. And yet the battle of Armageddon, from the end perspective, I mean, when people are fighting each other, it's one thing, but then when Jesus shows up on his white horse, it doesn't even say there's going to be a fight. He's going to speak, and everyone's going to melt what do you mean melt? Read Zechariah chapter 14. It's terrifying. He's just going to speak and it's done. All it says is he just grabs the Antichrist, grabs the false prophet, throws him in the lake of fire. Alive. Speak, all the opposition melts. Battle over. I've heard people say, yeah, I can't wait to go to war with Jesus. All you're going to do is watch because it's going to be over like that. There's no gonna, not going to be any protracted fighting. It's not like Jesus is going to be waiting around, swinging his sword or something like that. He's just going to speak, and Armageddon's over. And the blood will flow to the horse's bridles. It's not worth it to resist God's calls to repent. It's just not worth it. Not when he loves you and not when he offers you offers to bless you if you'll just simply lay down your rights and trust Him. Verse 15 deals with this group. When he was departed from there, he lighted on Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he, Jehu, saluted him, Jehonadab, and said to him, is your heart right and my heart with your heart? And Jehonadab answered, it is. And then Jehu says, if it be, then give me your hand. And so Jehonadab gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up to himself into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he slew all that remained unto Ahab in Samaria till he had destroyed him, according to the saying of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. It's kind of a funky situation here. Like, who is this guy? He just shows up, you know, and it's like, hey, hey. Let's be bros. Okay, let's go kill Ahab's descendants. Right on. It is kind of a a weird thing. Like, why are they even pointing this out? Like, why make mention of this event? 
Well, the word lighted on, it means to meet unexpectedly or to happen to find somebody. And it carries the idea of capturing or seizing somebody. So the idea is that this guy, Jehonadab, he, he came to meet with Jehu, and then when the army saw him, they arrest him. They take him into custody and bring him to Jehu. So in other words, he's not welcomed into camp. He's, he's seen as like an, an opposition. So who's this guy, Jehonadab, and what's going on here? Well, it tells us that he's the, he's the son of Rechab. Rechab, 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 55, tells us that Rechab was a member of the Kenites, which means he's a non-Israelite. The Kenites were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. Remember, he's not, a, he's not Jewish. But he, Moses married his daughter, right? And then he kind of became an advisor to Moses in the desert. And Moses, when he le- they left Sinai, he said, why don't you come with us? And he's like, no, I'll stay with my people. And he's like, come with us. He's like, you're following the Lord. Why would you stay here? We'll give you a part of the promised land. And so some of the Kenites decide to go. So this guy is a descendant of that, that tribe. They're not Israelis, but they were given an inheritance in the promised land because they joined Israel when they left Mount Sinai. Many years later in Jeremiah chapter 35, verses 6 through 11, this guy, Jehonadab, is mentioned. Many years later, he's just mentioned in Jeremiah 35, verses 6 through 11, it says that as Jeremiah is pronouncing judgment upon the nation, it says that there was a group that came before him, the, the Rechabites. And they said, listen, uh, they were offered wine. And he goes, we, they said, we will drink no wine for Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, commanded us saying, you shall not drink no wine, neither you nor your sons forever, neither shall you build a home nor sow seed, nor plant vineyards, nor even have any, but all your days you shall dwell in tents, that you may live many days in the land where you are foreigners. Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, and all that he has charged us. We don't drink wine all our days, our wives, our sons, our daughters. We don't build houses for us to dwell in, neither do we have vineyards, nor field, nor seed, but we have dwelt in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But it came to pass when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came up into the land that we said, well, come, let us go to Jerusalem because we're afraid of the army of the Chaldeans and we're afraid of the army of the Syrians, so that's why we're here at Jerusalem right now. So in the city, someone offered them something they weren't allowed to have, and they said, well, we can't have that. And like, why? Like, we're not even really supposed to be here, but we're here because of the, the invasion. And then you see that Jeremiah gives this whole blessing upon them because he says, all these years you've stayed faithful to this leader, this Jehonadab, this guy who set down these rules, and you've been faithful to him. He goes, wish God's people were as faithful to the things that their founder said. So this is who this guy is. He's a leader in his tribe. He's imposed these strict rules, couldn't drink alcohol. They had to travel as nomads, never settling down in their inheritance. Now, the Bible doesn't say whether that's good or not. It just says, hey, this is how this guy led. And it also seems that he was well known for his opposition to Ahab's policies. Because when he comes up, he's under arrest, he comes up and Jehu says, is your heart still the same as it used to be? Or is your heart like my heart is now? You still opposed to Ahab? It is? Going to kill me? No, I want to work with you. That's what's going on here. This guy wouldn't have passed. Jehu and John, they've been enemies but now things are changed. And so he greets him with, he salutes him, means to greet with a blessing, which probably, John Dabbs, why is he greeting me with a blessing? Is your heart right with me? The Hebrew's complicated there, but it, it means I have sincerely ch- changed my views on Ahab, 
do you still hold to your old views on Ahab? And he goes, yeah, I do. And he goes, well, if that's the truth, then take my hand. Trust me. I'll trust you. These are two guys who aren't used to trusting each other, so Jehu throws out a test. If you trust me, take my hand. Come on up into my chariot. Jehonadab does. And so this unlikely partnership forms, a partnership united in a goal to rid Israel of Ahab's influence. And so, verse 16, he says to, when they're in the chariot, and he says, you know, okay, what now? And he goes, I want you to come with me. I want you to see my zeal for the Lord. So they made him ride in his chariot. I'm going to Samaria. There's still work to do. You probably heard about some of the things I did, but I'm not done. This isn't about me. He says, see my zeal, my deep devotion to the Lord. I am committed to being God's instrument of judgment. I want you to see how I've changed. I don't intend to become another Ahab. I want to follow the Lord, and I want you to be with me in that. Now, based on what Jeremiah says and based on this interaction here, it leads me to believe that Jehonadab's opposition to Ahab was spiritually motivated, not just politically motivated that this guy at least sought to be either was a godly man or he was trying to be a godly man. Now, for Jehu, it's good politics because if this guy supports Jehu, then it means those who are faithful in Israel, they'll probably support Jehu. So Jehonadab agrees to come. And when they get to Samaria, Jehu shows them, I'm not playing around. He spares nobody. When they came to Samaria, verse 17, he slew all that remained, anyone left alive that was related to Ahab, Till he had destroyed him, it exterminated his line, according to the saying of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. And so this brings Elijah's prediction to full fulfillment. Every male descendant of Ahab in Israel is dead. Shows us that God kept his promise. We don't usually be like, praise the Lord, he keeps his promises when we look at his judgments. But that is also evidence that he keeps his promises. This also brings Jehu's quest for the throne to an end. I mean, he's, he's now truly the king over all of Israel. So how is he going to rule now that he has the throne? Well, his first action is to deal with Jezebel's remaining prophets, verse 18. And Jehu gathered all the people together. So, I mean, he's king, probably a coronation or something like that. And in his speech, he says this, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu shall serve him much. Now, therefore, call unto me all the prophets of Baal, all his servants, all his priests. Let none be wanting, missing. Nobody's allowed to be absent. For I have a great sacrifice to do to Baal. Whosoever shall be wanting, he shall not live. He says, I, he thought Ahab worshipped and served Baal, gave his energy and devotion to Baal. I'm going to do it even more. It's almost like he's coming out and going, Jehu, what's your platform? Here's my platform. Go to my website. I'm going to be a big, huge Baal supporter. I'm go- we're going all in on Baal worship. Round up every single member of, of clergy who are loyal to Baal in Israel because we're going to celebrate. And if you don't show up, you'll be executed. Now, Jehu already has a pretty brutal reputation by this point, so everyone knows he's not kidding. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, I thought Jehu said he wanted to follow the Lord. Let's keep reading. But Jehu did it in subtlety to the intent that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. He lies. I mean, he's totally fraudulent. He's deceiving them. He intends to exterminate not just the line of Ahab, but Baal worship in Israel completely. Now, 
The truth is, Jehu doesn't need this charade. He doesn't have to make an excuse to execute these guys. They've committed capital crimes that are worthy of death under God's law. So he has every right to just execute them. As king, it's Jehu's responsibility to deal with them. But Jehu lies because he believes this is the best strategy to eliminate Baal worship from Israel. This is the way to get everyone. Now, I want to point out that the writer does not condemn or condone how Jehu pulls this off. That means we should not presume God is okay with us lying to further His kingdom in some way. I've heard people not just defend themselves, but defend even politicians to go, well, you know, that's how you got to take care of things. And I'm like, well, Jehu, no, 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 no. There are things in the Bible, and unless the Bible says, and he did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, we should not go, we should do that. Sometimes things are just listed. Like Judas went out and hung himself. We're not to go and do likewise. Ephesians 4.25 is the best rule to follow regarding the topic of lying because it's a direct command. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 makes it very clear. We're believers now. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbors, for we are members one of another. Anytime you lie to someone, you're doing harm to them, and you're not recognizing the fact that we all are connected to each other. I think lying is one of the sins that we, we think is kind of small and inconsequential and not really that damaging. But the truth is, anytime you lie to someone, you don't, you build a wall where they don't know the real you, and you can't really know the real them because you're protecting yourself from your lie being found out, even if it's a petty lie. It's interesting, Paul quotes here, he doesn't make up these words, speak every man truth with his neighbor. He's quoting that from Zechariah 8.16. And Zechariah 8.16, because I've heard people say, well, that's just, you know, to Christians, you can lie to non-Christians. But there's no Christians in Zechariah 8.16. In Zechariah 8.16, he's just saying, this is how you should live. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you every man the truth to his neighbor and execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. In other words, whoever comes and visits you, whoever comes into contact with you, speak truth to them. So God's heart on the topic is really clear. So let's be those who speak truth to our neighbors, okay? Well, what's the response to this call to worship? Well, verse 20 and 21 of 2 Kings 10, I got to hurry. It says, Jehu said, proclaim a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left that did not come. And so they came into the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was full from one end unto the other. I don't know how big the temple to Baal was in Israel, but this makes me sad that it was a packed house. You know, having a packed house is not automatic proof that God's work is being done. Now, does that mean big churches are automatically evil? No, certainly not. There was only one church in Jerusalem, and in a matter of just a few weeks, 3,000 men got saved and 5,000 men got saved. Doesn't count any women or children. So, we also know for a fact that, that they didn't divide into a bunch of little churches in Jerusalem. There was one church. So, so it's, it's not the size of a church that makes it godly or wicked. It's the 
quality of the people. If the people are following Jesus closely, like they did in Jerusalem, then you can have a church of 15,000 people and be healthy. You can be a church of 10 people and be wonderfully healthy. But if the people are carnal and the leaders abandon God's Word, whether you have 25 people or 25,000 people who are really involved and really busy doing spiritual things, it's not going to glorify the Lord. So, into this packed house, verse 22, Jehu said unto him that was over the vestry, the priestly wardrobe, and he said, bring forth vestments for everybody, for all the worshipers of Baal, and he brought them forth these vestments. Jehu orders the guy in charge of the, royal war, the priestly wardrobe, bring it all out. Everybody gets a special outfit today because he wants to make sure those who are loyal to Baal stand out. Verse 23, and Jehu went and Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, into the house of Baal, and they said unto the worshipers of Baal, hey, before we start the festival, he says, search and look that there be here with you none of the servants of the Lord, only the worshipers of Baal. I think Jehu deserves credit for making sure nobody's there by mistake. He doesn't want any true servants of the Lord. Maybe they showed up to preach against this horrible celebration, whatever it might be. He doesn't want anybody caught in his trap who doesn't belong in it. But with that settled, he springs the trap. Verse 24, and when they went in to offer, this is not Jehu, when they, the, the priests of Baal, went into the, the house to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings, Jehu appointed 80 men outside and said, if any of the men whom I have brought into your hands escape, he that lets him go, his life shall be for the life of him. Oh, man, Jehu doesn't play. He's like, if any of these guys get out and I find out who did it, who allowed them to get out, your life is for theirs. I'll consider you a traitor. He's serious about eradicating ball worship. Don't let anybody escape. And so it came to pass, verse 25, as soon as he had made an end of offering, that Jehu said to the guard and to the captains, go in and slay them. Let none come forth. And so they smote them with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the captains cast them out. Literally, it means they threw the bodies out of the way as they're trying to get deeper into the temple. It says, and they went to the city of the house of Baal. The word city there, it means the inner shrine. So this shows us the clergy's response to the trap. They didn't try to run. They tried to keep Jehu and his men from getting deeper into the temple to desecrate it. Now, if that was on the news today, they'd go, these admirable and brave people But is it admirable or brave to be courageous for a lie? By the same definition, the 9-11 terrorist would be admirable or brave. No, this is not admirable or brave. It was a stubborn waste of life that could have been avoided if they repented. But this is what Satan wants. What's his plan? To steal, kill, and destroy, right? And that's why truth matters. It matters because truth affects how we live, so don't let the enemy rip you off. Well, they pushed further in, verse 26, and they brought forth the images out of the house of Baal and burned them. They broke down the image of Baal, broke down the house of Baal, and they made it, King James politely says, a drought house unto this day, but you might have a translation that says outdoor toilet. That would be correct. He turned it into a latrine. And thus, Jehu destroyed Baal, exterminated Baal worship in Israel. So, Jehu's task of ridding Israel of Ahab and Jezebel's influence, it's complete. I remember as a, a teenager reading this for the first time, 
I was a young believer, and I remember thinking, wow, man, this guy is hardcore. I mean, he, he's, he's a, finally, Israel's going to get a great king. And then I was so shocked and saddened by what I read next. Look at verse 29. He does all this. How be it? The writer says, from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel a sin, Jehu did not depart from after them. That is, and he explains to us, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. This word, how be it, implies that Jehu's good start was the exception to the rest of his reign. That, he had a good start, but that's, that's the only good thing he did. He didn't, he didn't reform enough. You see, he only went, took Israel back to the way things were before Ahab. He didn't lead the nation back to God's Word. You see, the whole reason that Ahab became a king in Israel was because God was judging the wicked kings that came before him because of the golden bulls that were in Bethel and in Dan. Remember, Jeroboam built those to keep his people from going to the temple to worship the Lord, the place where they were supposed to worship the Lord. This is why, by the way, the answer to a nation's problems can never just be get rid of the bad guys. That that's, can never be a good answer to a nation's problem. It can never be just get rid of the bad guys. There must be an acknowledgement, and hear me when I say this because I hear Christians say this all the time, lesser of two evils. There must be an acknowledgement that lesser evils still offend God. There must be that acknowledgement that lesser evils still prevent His blessings. Only a true return to genuine righteousness exalts a nation. That's what the Scriptures say. Lesser evils do not exalt a nation. And yet the Lord is so gracious that despite Jehu's overall failure, He does bless Jehu for His obedience in eradicating Ahab's line. Verse 30, And the Lord said unto Jehu, because you've done well in executing that which is right in my eyes. This, what you did pleased me. Dealing with Ahab's family, that pleased me. Because you've done well in ex- executing that which is right in my eyes, and you've done under the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, well, then your children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. That's not a super comforting promise, though. Well, what's going to happen to number four? Well, then I'm going to exterminate your line, Jehu. Verse 31, but Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord his God. Even after God said this to him, he took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord his Lord God of Israel with all his heart. For he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which made Israel to sin. The word took no heed means he didn't really pay careful attention. He didn't obey the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. Standing up to evil isn't enough. Trying to do better than others isn't enough. If that was the case, we wouldn't need the cross. God wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart. Does he have it? Well, God disciplines Israel for Jehu's poor leadership. Verse 32, in those days, the Lord began to cut Israel short. It means he began to reduce or decrease his hand on them. 
And so as a result, Haziel, the king of Syria, he smote them in all the coasts of Israel, from Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, the Reubenites, the Manassites, from Aroer, which is by the river Arnon, even Gilead and Bashan. So this land that Ahab and his sons have been fighting over with the king of Syria, and they recapture a city, and then the Syrians recapture a city, this war has been going back and forth. God says, enough. You're losing it completely. And they lose the entire Transjordan. Two and a half tribes worth of land, never in their control again. As a result of Jehu's disobedience, Israel loses God's favor. You know, it's interesting, in Isaiah 59, the Lord says, he said, my hand is not short that I cannot save, but it's your sins that have created the distance between us. I don't have short hands. The problem is your sin. God is never out of reach or unable to touch us, but God removes His hand of favor here from Israel, and it exposes Him to danger. And that's the mistake we often make when we sin. You know, we evaluate a situation, and we go, I'll be all right if I do this. Even if things go poorly, I'll be fine. But what we're failing to recognize is the reason that we've been fine all along is because God has His hand of protection on us. And we decide to just repeatedly keep going in this other direction, God's going to remove that hand of protection and our equation no longer works because you've not counted the most important variable, which is God's grace. And as a result of Jehu's miscalculation, Israel's borders become completely exposed when God removes his hand. And Haziel strikes back and he captures not just Ramoth-Gilead, but the entirety of the Transjordan. And so where does that leave Jehu's legacy? It's crazy. We've spent two chapters getting to know this guy, and now we will learn nothing else because he literally did nothing else. Verse 34, now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did, all his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? It's like the, it's like the, the writer says, you know, uh, if you want to find out more about this guy, go read it in the book. But I don't have anything to say that would be helpful to you because nothing he did would be helpful to you. Jehu slept with his fathers. They buried him in Samaria and Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his stead. And the time that Jehu reigned over Israel and Samaria was 28 years. The writer finds nothing else worth mentioning because none of it would help the exiles that he's writing to to return to the Lord. Think about that, 28 years. See, so is there anything that from Jehu's life that could be helpful to us? No. No. It was a waste. 28 years of life wasted on things that didn't really matter. I don't want that to be my testimony. Let's all stand. Lord, we want a better testimony than that. And Lord, we're so grateful that you're so gracious that if we just come to you and say, Lord, I want to live in such a way that my life counts for something greater than 28 years of, go read it in a book if you want to know more. So Lord, you know where we're at. You know what it is you want to do in us. And so we're just saying, Lord, have your way. Lord, we want to be zealous like Jehu was when he started, but we don't, want to, we don't just want to be zealous tonight and then have a week that really doesn't involve you. So, Lord, we pray that as we go throughout our week, we leave here. We want to stay close to you. We want to walk with you with, with all our heart. Be, be not like Jehu, but to walk with you and, and walk in your ways with all our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.